Well, I don't think. Let me see. My granddaughter, I don't see my granddaughter here this morning. And I don't know, I don't see, I think Liberty's gone as well. So I'm going to talk really quickly. I'm going to throw them under the bus because they're in eighth grade. I'm safe right now, right? They, they're, they're gone. Well, they know all too well, and I'm sure some of you remember. Maybe you don't remember. It's been so far gone. In eighth grade, you have to pass a certain type of a test to be able to go on to high school, and that test is U.S. government, also known as civics. Well, it's basically how our judicial system works. And I was always, it was always interesting to me to uh, take these classes, and as you get older, you, okay, I remember that. I remember the, the three, I can't even say it now, the three branches of government and how they work. But one thing do you remember, and I'm going to ask you, do you remember ever being taught what an unfunded mandate is? an unfunded mandate. I love it right now because I see the, your eyes going back in the back of most of your head. You're going, I have no clue what you're talking about. Well, never fear. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. An unfunded mandate is something that comes down from the federal government to the states or local entities telling them, you must do this but we're not going to give you any funding to do it. Okay, thank you. Thank you that we have to take care of that. That's what an unfunded mandate is. Now, for those of you, so you can understand, anybody ever heard of No Child Left Behind? That was an unfunded mandate. Roxanne is going, yeah, remember that? We had to, we had to do that. We had to accomplish all these things without money. All right, so states and local school districts, they argued, we have so many costs, we're not able to take care of these things. How are we going to fund them? Now, shocker, I'm not here to talk about government mandates this morning. I really, really, really don't want to do that, but I want to suggest one thing. Some of us are tempted to view our Christian lives how we live our lives as an unfunded mandate. Let that sink in. I want you to think about it because I'm going I'm to clue you in here what I'm talking about. God requires holiness and obedience and service and sacrifice, and sometimes these things are costly. They're costly for us. They're, they cost us a great deal. And we are tempted to think that these obligations that God puts us under, these mandates, we see them and we understand them, and we think that we have to accomplish them through our own strength. I'm going to gut this out. I'm going to do it. I can do this. And we end up falling flat on our face. We view this as an unfunded mandate because we think we have to do it with our own resources. But we believe, we do. We have a mandate from God. We have a mandate from God to do many things. He's called us to love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. I'll be the first to admit, I cannot do that. I can't. 
on my own. I cannot do that. But today in Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to see Paul directly challenge the idea of an unfunded mandate. We're going to learn here that the Christian life is, it's not an unfunded mandate. When God requires faithfulness and obedience from us, He supplies grace for us that we may obey. We are enabled. We are enabled. I would ask that you stand out of respect for the Word of God today. And again, the, the verse, the Scripture is found in Ephesians chapter 3, page 977 in your pew Bible if, you, if you'd like to follow along. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word, and may we be strengthened by God Himself to be able to live lives that are pleasing in His sight. Please be seated. Well, up to this point… Up to this point in Ephesians, Paul's been explaining God's master plan. In fact, that's what the name of the series is, God's master plan, and specifically what it means to be redeemed, specifically His plan of redemption. Well, in His plan, again, here we go. I'm going to review. In His plan, before the world was created, He chose us before the world was created to live holy and godly lives before Him, before Him. Predestined us to be adopted as His sons and, his, and daughters in His family through Christ, through His death. We've been brought and bought and released from the slave market of sin. Not only that, we've been forgiven. We can close our eyes at night and know God cares for us. He forgives us no matter what we've done. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We, Gentiles and, Jew, and Jewish believers, have also been made into one new family. That's the church. We've been put into the church. We're not separated anymore. Jesus died to break down the hostility that was between both us, Jews and Gentiles, and mankind and God. And because Paul himself, who was before a former enemy of the church, 
and now was converted, and how he was sent to the Gentiles to declare the good news. And because they had responded, this is why he bows his knees before the Father. He's excited. He's written all these things. All these things have happened for me, for you. And he bows his knees. He bows his knees because of his amazement. God would save someone like me who was an enemy of his church. Saul, who was turned to Paul, he responded on his knees. Why did he respond on his knees? Because we think, well, yeah, we always found out. Mommy and Daddy said before we go to bed, we need to get on our knees and pray. That is not how a Jewish person prayed. A Jewish person prayed standing up with his hands in the air, just like they do today at the Wailing Wall. They pray with their hands standing up in the air. And when someone kneeled, it indicated an extraordinary event of, of, or a time of immense passion. Now, biblical examples of hitting your knees, they were King Solomon, when the temple was dedicated, he bowed his knees on a wooden platform before the people and before the Lord. He bowed his knees one other time when somebody bowed their knees in the Scriptures. Jesus in Gethsemane, he bowed his knees. In fact, he hit his face on the ground. So, by writing this, by writing he was on his knees, we know that he was emotional and reverent. But why was he praying this now? Why was he praying this prayer now? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question. Dude, you already prayed two chapters earlier. Just get to the meat. Get to what you want to talk about and get it, get it done. Why, would, why did he pray now? Well, in his first prayer, he prayed that the Ephesians would understand the gospel and what it means. Understand what it means. You need to understand what the Scriptures are declaring, and you need to understand what the plan is, because you have to have knowledge to respond. Here he goes beyond the first prayer by asking God to reveal the vastness of His power. He wants God to reveal it. He wants Him to make us aware and let's to put it into practice. And this power is available to every person who is in Christ. Every person. This prayer will change your life because what's in it can't help but change your life. Because our God is so big and so great. Now, why would he pray it now? Why would we need to understand that we need to put this into practice? Well, in chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians, and for us who have followed the Ephesians, us, we'll be given real-life commands about living. Real life commands about living. And you're going, eh, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm sure that this book written 2,000 years ago or so, it has nothing to, I have nothing to relate to it. 
Wrong. Wrong. We'll see. Let me make sure I read this correctly because I don't want to forget anything. See if you can relate to any of these. How to live with others who are difficult. Nah, I won't go there. I won't even point any fingers. How to live in unity. Okay. How to walk in love when people aren't loving. It's kind of the same, but here's the one. How to live clean and sober when you're fighting addiction. And what do you do when you've fallen off the wagon? Hmm. How to love your spouse in a marriage that's difficult. Don't raise your hand there. How to be a great employee. How to treat your kids. How to raise your kids. Kids, how to treat your parents. And finally, how we're to do battle against the unseen spiritual powers who seek to destroy us. Do you see anything in there? Do you see why you would need God's power, His Spirit, to understand how we must live? How to live when we're living on the ragged edge? Well, how can we do this? By being enabled being enabled by God. And Paul, understanding how much he himself had been given by God and how much he loved God, he prays now that these truths would allow allow those who are in the church that they would be enabled to live in victory. Do you want to live in victory? I know I do. And if you're in Christ, if you have trusted what Christ has done for you and have been transformed from death to life, you've been loved in the same way that Paul was loved. You've been loved in the same way that the Ephesians were loved. He loves you greatly. Well, who then did he depend on? Who did he depend on? The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, just as Jesus had taught His disciples. How should we pray? Our Father. Unheard of in the Old Testament. Unheard of. And this is hard for those who have not had the best of fathers. But believe me, God is a good, good Father. Father is a term of intimacy but it also has overtones of dignity and authority. A good father, listen to me, Tyler, because you're going to be this in in a few months. A good father sought the good of his family. They always seek the good, but they also ruled over the family unit. A good father has a mixture of compassion and a mixture of strength, someone you can take all your burdens to, and someone who will listen, and someone who will put his arm around you and say, I've got this with you. We can do this. And speaking of Father God, 
He's the Father from whom every family in, on heaven and on earth is named. Now, before you think, well, is, is Paul teaching, teaching universalism here? Is he teaching, oh, we're all… Fa- God is all our fathers. No, there are two, two categories. God is either your father or Satan is your father. That's it. That's it. No, what he means is he's speaking of Christians. He's speaking of the old Sunday school song that we always used to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, he is strong. That's not the one, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. I said that for some reason. Young, old, educated, non-educated, male, female. Everyone who on heaven and earth is named, everyone who is in Christ Jesus, and that means you if you've been saved. Now, if we were watching TBN, we would look and we would say, I know what Paul's going to pray for. He's going to pray for health, wealth, and ease right? He's going to pray for health, wealth, and ease. That Cadillac, that new house, everything that I can possibly have, I deserve because God's my Father. No, He's not praying for that. Shocker. He understands the true need that for the family of God to live victorious kingdom lives, they need God to provide, first of all, spiritual power. Spiritual power. And as I have said and I have asked before in this series, and I will continue to ask, how big is your God? How big is your God? And the answer is, He is so big. He made the world and everything in it. Go outside and see the stars on a clear night. He made that. For those of you who love, I just got to witness the Grand Canyon this year. First time. I looked at that. He made that with a flood. That's awesome. He made the sea. He made the land. He made a baby with their little fingers going like this. He has power. He has the power to create, and He has the power to redeem His creation. Let's look back at our passage at verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being. I want you to think with me. Can we all agree that we need God's strength in times of suffering? (laughs) Yes. That's not a trick question. Yes, because, yeah, we know it is. If you look back at verse 13 of this particular chapter, Paul was talking about don't be discouraged, don't be heartbroken that I'm suffering here. I'm suffering for you. So, we need God in suffering. 
But think, on an easy day, we don't show off God's grace and love the same way that we do on a difficult day. When all the things are going well, and believe me, we like it when things are going well. We like it when they're smooth. But what tends to happen when things are going smooth? He goes away. He's there. A biblical truth that isn't taught enough. My grace is sufficient for you when you're in need. My grace is sufficient. We grow closer to God in trials and difficulties than we ever do when things are going well. As one theologian has written, and I quote, but who has strength for suffering? It's a good question. But who has strength for suffering? We do not choose suffering. I don't, I don't see anybody raising their hands, give me some, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to take the pain. No, no, we, we don't do that. We don't choose suffering. We shrink from it like Christ in the garden. Hear me? Like Christ in the garden, we inevitably draw back and ask, if it's possible, may this cup pass from me. If we're to show God's wisdom in such times, it must be by God's strength. He must send His angels to minister to us as He did in the garden. What other times do we need God's power? Well, we need to be strengthened in every circumstance. I know that. Are you facing temptation? Are you facing temptation? We need strength every day to do what's right so the Lord we serve can be honored. What could that temptation be? It could be what I look at on the computer, what I click on. It could be what I choose to watch, who I choose to watch. It could be this. It could be, Lord, I need help to open my mouth to witness to somebody, to tell somebody the truth about Jesus. We need that. We need that very much. The Holy Spirit gives us help in difficult circumstances, and it's why Christ prayed for God to send the Holy Spirit in His high priestly prayer recorded in John 14. I'm going to send you the Comforter. Verse 17 in Ephesians, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, at first, this seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? Because he's talking to Christians, he's talking to, to believers, and we've already understood that if we're in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit has sealed and indwelt us. So what in the world is he talking about here? If I'm a Christian, again, I have the Holy Spirit in me. If you don't have the Spirit in you, you don't have Christ. It's as simple as that. A true Christian is indwelt and sealed 
But the word that Paul uses here is katokeo. It's the Greek word which means not only to dwell, but to settle down. He could have used another word. He used this word. He asked that God sits down in your house, in your body, and lives there and is comfortable there. He's not asking, where do you keep the pots and pans? Where do you keep the, where do you keep, what's in that refrigerator? He knows. He knows everything about you, and you let him in to see every corner of your life, every cupboard door, even your garage that needs to be cleaned. means that God is in full control of the residence. He rules over everything and every part of who we are and what we do. That's what Paul is praying for here. So Paul prays for spiritual power for all believers. Next, he prays that we comprehend the love of Christ. Comprehend the love of Christ. Men and women, if we comprehend how much God loves us, this godly love of Christ is in us, it will overflow. He prays that you, being rooted and grounded in love, he's praying that we have a lifestyle of love. He uses a botanical term and an architectural term, an illustration. Trees, they have to be rooted. They have to be rooted down to receive moisture and to hold the tree up when it's, when it's stormy outside. In Psalm 1, a believer is defined as this, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Our lives, simply this, must settle down its deep roots into the soil of love. And like buildings, a foundation that's built, an architectural term, the foundations need to be laid. A stiff, a strong foundation. And if that's the case, a metaphorical storm, something that just is blowing, God, why is this happening? Why is this going on? That storm will not blow you over because you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this years ago concerning love and its fruit. And it's from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, many of us know this, but he said, love is the key. It starts with love, and everything goes down from it. Let me quote Barnhouse. He said, love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. 
And it's been accurately said that there are no fruits of the Spirit without love. And where's that love come from? It comes from Christ. Paul understands that for there to be any viability in ministry, corporate or personal, there must be genuine love. And that love's horizontal. He's talking about horizontal love right there. But it's only made possible by the vertical. And that's Christ's love. We just took the Lord's Supper this morning. Christ's love. Him laying His life down. For a good people? No, for sinners. For sinners. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints, with all the saints, from beginning to end, everybody, from the Ukraine to the United States, from Russia to Germany, to Mexico. Talk, comprehend with all the saint, saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Forty-seven years ago, I met my friend's sister. Well, that sister, we hit it off. We fell in love. Well, what did I like about her? I liked how she was competitive. I liked how smart, I loved how smart she was, how talented she was. And at 15, I liked the way she looked. I still do like the way she looks, but I'm just saying it wasn't maybe the deep, deep, you know, abiding love that we think of now. Goodness, I was a 15-year-old boy, but I, she was great. Five years later, we were married. And I thought at the time, you know, I could not love her any more than I possibly did at that moment. I don't think she has her phone on right now. I was wrong. Semi-joking. I was, I was really wrong. Through the joys and the woes of raising three children and two foster kids for a time, the loss of a vocation, the sharing of ministry, the joy of gaining a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law who have been daughters and a son to us, the joys of grandchildren. I could go on to, but suffice to say, by God's grace, there, there, I'm hoping and I know there will be even deeper love coming forward. But understand, that love does not compete. That love does not compete with the love of Christ. My love for my wife is finite, and it's flawed. But I can also say that there's no device on this earth that can measure it. 
And I say this to contrast what our text tells us and calls us to contemplate. It tells us to contemplate, to comprehend what surpasses knowledge. What are you talking about? I'm supposed to understand what I can't understand? That's what God's love is, the love that He showed by laying down His life for sinners. The famous preacher from Dallas, Texas, Dr. W.A. Criswell, liked to talk about God's love in four dimensions, and he used John 3.16 to talk about it. For God so loved the world, that was the breadth. God so loved the world, that included you. It includes me. That He gave His Son. That's the length. That's the length. He sent Jesus to die for you from heaven to here. That's the length that He would go, that they should not perish. That's the depth. He reached down for you. He reached down that they would have everlasting life. That's the height that brings us from here to heaven. I've read and and are still coming to understand that Christ's love is broader than the universe, longer than time, higher than hope, deeper than depth, and as we are strengthened by the Spirit on the inside, we will come to a new comprehension of His love for us. Do you see how it builds? A comprehension, as a Spirit inside and we comprehend what His love is for us. It helps us to live. We understand, how great is your love? How great are you? And the old hymn, oh, how He loves you and me. Paul's prayed that God would enable us with His spiritual power and that we will comprehend the love of Christ. And as this takes place, I can only quote the last half of verse 19. This is the next prayer. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's heavy. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. MacArthur says it this way, and I quote, The inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness in us. To be filled up to all the fullness of God is indeed incomprehensible, even to God's own children. It is incredible and indescribable. There is no way this side of heaven we can fathom that truth We can only believe it and praise God for it. Let's get some help trying to understand this. Turn a few pages over to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians was written around the same time that the book of Ephesians was written, and in fact, it was written from the same place. In the same hole that Paul was writing Ephesians from, he wrote the book of Colossians. 
and I'm going to go off topic here, but can you understand when something bad, how many people were saying, release Paul, release Paul? No, he's writing. He's writing, and we still benefit from those written letters today. Well, we find in the book of Colossians, again, it was written about the same time where Paul wrote Ephesians, and he explains in verse 19 of chapter 1, for in Him, that's Christ, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Christ is full. In the next chapter, Paul continues his teaching in verse number 9. Colossians 2, 9, for in Him, again, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. Wait, what? We have been filled in Him? Now, let me explain this by using another illustration. And I think that you'll understand it because most of you, I'm sure, have been to the Pacific Ocean. You've been to the Pacific Ocean. We've looked out, and let's even get past the Channel Islands. Let's go a little farther north where we can't see anything. And all we can see is water. And it's huge. And when we're compared to the ocean, we're like a little piece of sand on the beach. It is just so big, so incomprehensible. And you go out, might send a little kid out there because the water's too cold, but we'll, we'll use this. You go, you go out, you take the little plastic bucket, and you go out and you let a wave hit your bucket, and it fills the bucket up. All right, so it's, it's filled with the fullness of the Pacific. Now, all you have is a little bucket. It's filled with the fullness of the Pacific. But you could and would never get the fullness of the Pacific into that bucket. That bucket's finite. It's small. You are finite. Christ is not. Because Christ is infinite, He can hold all the fullness of deity. And whenever one of His finite creatures dips the tiny vessel of our life into Him, we instantly become full of His fullness. We can always open to hold more and more of His fullness. We're leaky. We're leaky creatures. But God provides His Spirit to fill us up more and more and more. And the more we receive, the more we get full, the more we can receive. And this will be our experience in eternity, the ultimate elevation of our souls. It's quite a prayer, isn't it? And again, it's definitely one of my favorites in the Scriptures because it's so full of hope and promise of what God has provided for us, how we can live victoriously. You know, there, there's so much good theology here. There's just so much good theology, and, and Paul, of course, was, that's the way most of his prayers were, but do you know that 
A prayer can't only be theology. It has to have doxology. It has to have giving glory. We have to give glory to the one we talk about, to the one who deserves our praise. Think about it. In the Psalms, when we have the imprecatory Psalms, when they're complaining, when they're crying out to God, oh, woe is me, and agree, oh, woe is me. But then at the end, all, every one of them, but God is good. He's the one who deserves our prayer and praise. Verse 20 Please look at this. Please look at this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. Are our prayers, are your prayers big enough? more than what we ask or what we think? Do we believe what God has promised to accomplish? And may I add what He's accomplishing? He's doing great things in your lives. Great things. Here's another question. Can we ever pray enough? Can we ever pray enough? God's ready to provide you with spiritual power through the indwelling of the Spirit. He has shown His great love for us and continues to do so, providing us with His Spirit to love us well, and He will provide us with His ever-growing fullness in this life. And according to His Word, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. May our lives be changed as we pray for others, our church, and ourselves. May we be enabled.